0: Well, good morning. Good morning. morning. So the year was 1990, and it was a typical September afternoon in Ottawa, Canada, when 24-year-old Danny Simpson walked into a local bank, gun in hand, and demanded money. He made off with $6,000, but worse, he made two really bad decisions that day. The first... Well, he robbed a bank. (laughs) That's never a good idea. But the second was that he used a firearm that had been passed down in his family for several years, a 1918 Colt 45 semi semi-automatic pistol manufactured by the Ross Rifle Company. Simpson was almost immediately apprehended, and his gun was confiscated. But it wasn't until about midway through the trial that the observation was made that this Colt 45 was actually a limited edition collectible. Experts valued it at upwards of $100,000, totally unbeknownst to Simpson, who would then spend six years in a Canadian prison while his gun still resides at the Canadian Royal Mounty Police Museum. He was totally unaware of what he possessed in his own hand that morning. And instead, his aim of his heart was on some worldly prize, $6,000. He had no idea. I was thinking about that story specifically last week when Pastor Stephen Bonda shared with us. If you recall, he put up this image and he spoke on behalf of his church in Malawi, with great gratitude and expression of thanksgiving for the Bibles that you had gifted him. And that for many in his churches, this would be the first time they would ever have the Word of God in their hand, in their own language, in a personal Bible. And as I was thinking about these two accounts, seemingly totally unrelated, a church in Malawi and a bank robber in Canada, it dawned on me that this is such a great portrayal of the two great tragedies that exist in our world today relative to the Bible. The first is the tragedy that there are many who are completely unaware of God's word, yet they desperately desire it, but have no access to it. The second is that there are many who, completely unaware of God's word, have great access to it, but they have no desperate desire for it. It's as if it's in the palm of their hand, and it is of eternal, infinite more value, and they have no idea. And so this morning, as we continue in our teaching from the letters to Timothy, I am prayerful that each of us will walk out of here with a greater understanding of just how critical God's word, the source of the Bible is to his revelation, and that we would be encouraged to desperately desire it the learning, the loving, and the living out of God's Word. It's a message titled, An All-Scripture Faith. And we're going to be in the passage, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. And again, we're moving through these letters this summer, and we're nearing the end. But just as a bit of background, these letters to Timothy were written by the Apostle Paul from a Roman prison cell around the year A.D. 67, They were written along with the letter to Titus as pastoral epistles. In other words, sharing with his co-ministers in the faith, how that they might share and carry on the faith and instruct others how to do that. The important thing to keep in mind, though, is that these are Paul's final letters. In fact, 2 Timothy is the very last letter that he wrote of all 13 of the epistles we have in the New Testament. We will see in the weeks that follow, as we conclude this 2 Timothy book, that Paul knew his death was imminent. And as I think about that, I'm reminded of the old saying, when a dying man speaks of life, we would do well to listen. See, because before us, before us this morning, we have the dying words of the Apostle Paul the man of many missionary journeys, uh, the man whose conversion itself was the thing of biblical proportions, the thing who preached hundreds of sermons, who held audiences with uh, religious Jews and pagan Greeks, with philosophers and lawyers, with priests and scholars. And it's all come down to this. Of all the advice and the life experience and the wisdom that Paul has to draw on from his life. He writes to us this morning. As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Knowing from whom you learned it and how from your childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the servant of God may be complete, equipped for every good work." You know, I would like to think that if you or I were given the opportunity to write a final letter to a really close friend, we would think pretty hard about that. We would give that serious consideration. I would suggest that we would probably pray about those words that we would share. We would want it to be the, the best of the best. You know, what is this one big idea from my life that I want to leave with those who received this letter? And I would like to think that's exactly what Paul did as he's writing 2 Timothy. And as he did, the Lord spoke to him and worked through him and said, Paul, here we go. We're going to end this strong. Some of the best of the best that you have and we're going to tell Timothy and we're going to tell all the others, never lose your passion for my word and remind them, Timothy, all of us, of what my word reveals. And that's exactly what Paul does with these few verses. So first, Paul tells Timothy, he gives him a reminder. He says, Timothy, the Bible makes you wise for salvation. You, being acquainted with it, with these sacred writings, have been able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so we hear that, and really there's a couple questions, I think, that this begs. The first is, what are the sacred writings? We don't say that a lot. And then how do they show us salvation through Jesus? And so the first thing, let's just talk about the sacred writings. The sacred writings, when we talk about this or we answer it, I think sometimes surprises us. Or at least we don't think about it till we think about it. But there was no New Testament. These letters, these writings of the gospel in the first few centuries, they were being circulated, perhaps compiled. But no one would have thought of them as scripture or sacred writings. And so when, when we're told that uh, dozens and dozens of times by these writers, by Paul, about the scriptures or the sacred writings, what we know is that this is the terminology that would have been clearly understood is what we refer to as the Old Testament. And if it helps, I hope, the common understanding of the scriptures to the early century Christians and Jews, as you see here, would have been reminded often, would have been categorized into three distinct categories. They would have spoke to them as the law and the prophets and the writings. And if any of you are familiar with Judaism, or perhaps you have some uh, family or friends of the Jewish faith, that is still what exists today as the Hebrew Scriptures, these 24 books. Now, if you look closely, these 24 equate to our 39, just in a different way. And it would be great to spend about an hour on this. It's really interesting of how that came about, but we can't do that. Because we have something more important to talk about. Most important is understanding how do these scriptures, according to all of the writers and according to what we read, how do they make us wise to salvation through Jesus Christ when there is no New Testament? Well, first, fundamental to comprehending what Paul is saying here is our knowledge that the Old Testament is a forward-looking account of God and for God. See, from the time that sin entered the garden, God began revealing his future plan of redemption and of reconciling man to himself. Through his people Israel, through the judges, through the the kings, through the prophets, through his covenants, all of these are leading us, pushing us forward to the cross and the fulfillment of that plan. This is exactly the point that Jesus is making when he tells his disciples in Luke 24, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms or the writings must be fulfilled. He says it also in John 5. He speaks of searching the scriptures. And yes, it's they that bear witness about me. And then again in Luke. He began with Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted them, the scriptures, the things concerning himself. I was thinking about that, what it must have been like for the disciples to sit there in what amounted to an early century small group or Bible study. And Jesus is teaching the Old Testament. And if if we were in that group, we were able to be a fly on the wall, what it would have been like. He might have pointed to something like Numbers 24, and he might have said, Guys, look, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. That's, that's me. Or he might have gone to Deuteronomy 18, 15, and seen where Moses said, There'll be someone like me, but greater, someone that you shall listen to. That's me. And then we might have gone to Psalm 16, where David writes about the resurrection and the fact that they will not, the Holy One will not see corruption. And you might look around the group and say, all right, any guesses? That's me. And that's why it's incumbent upon us to be Old Testament students and New Testament saints. The Old Testament is what makes us wise for salvation, and it does so by pointing us to Jesus and this plan for reconciliation. It's exactly what Paul is doing in Corinthians, to the Corinthians, when he writes, you know, I delivered to you the first importance, what I received, that Christ died for our sins, not according to what was said or what I taught you, but to the scriptures. And then Philip, he meets the Ethiopian eunuch along the way, and the Ethiopian eunuch had just acquired a scroll of Isaiah And he's reading Isaiah, and he's saying, I have no idea what this means. And so Philip sits down with him, and beginning with that scripture, he tells him the good news about Jesus. And that scripture, I want to make a note, is Isaiah 53, which many consider to be the greatest prophecy of the Messiah that points to Jesus in the scriptures. This is why I think we all should be stunned at the fact that there are those who would diminish and minimize the relevancy of or discourage the interest in the Old Testament Scripture today. And you know, the whole idea of of really interest in Scripture, uh, I was driving to Charlotte a few weeks ago, and I'm, I'm turning the radio dial, and I come across a sports show station. And it's World Cup fever time. And I'm trying to talk World Cup with some of you guys. So I'm thinking, you know, what's going on with football? And I'm listening. And as my attention is drifting away, which admittedly didn't take long, um, I hear this. And I quote from the host. Golf and tennis, man, they're just like church. In church, you have this old, boring book. I turned it off. More saddened. At hearing that 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 was a thought and then I started to think well how how do I respond to that I mean surely radio sports show hosts aren't the only ones who have come to this conclusion right so what's what's my reply And my first reply is man no way I mean, don't you know and realize how remarkable the narrative of Scripture is and its cross-references and consistency and the cultural context and the history and the religious context? And I stopped myself because I said, man, that sounds boring to me. (laughs) That's not going to work. I'm proving their point if you're equating boredom with the Bible. And then then I continued to think on it, and um, I, I realized that the very best witness that I could give on how engaging the Bible can be comes from sharing and standing right here before you today, sharing the undeniable fact that those times in my life that have been most faithful, most joy-filled, most purposeful have been those times when I have been most interested in and acquainted with the Bible, without doubt. And conversely, those times in my life that have been especially dry and fruitless, without purpose or meaning, with no growth in any area, much less spiritual growth, have been those times when I have seen God's word as either irrelevant in my life or have have considered it really just another religious book. So yes, it is the most amazing compilation of literature that has ever been compiled for all the reasons that I initially said to myself. But more importantly... It is the most life-changing and most powerful compilation of literature that has ever been compiled because within its 66 books, written across 1,500 years by 40 authors in three languages in multiple geographies with at least seven distinct genres, there is a single thread of Jesus Christ throughout. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is life-changing, not boring, Because it makes us wise to salvation through Jesus Christ. And so Paul reminds Timothy that. Timothy already knew this. So so we we should be sitting here saying, all right, we already know. That's a reminder. Then he says, but let me teach you a couple of things about the Bible that you need to know. Timothy, you need to know that the Bible is inspired and profitable. That the entire Bible is inspired and profitable. He says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3:16 this verse I believe to be the most significant verse in all of scripture about scripture because it speaks to the truth and the unity and the authority of God's word. It challenges us to consider what it is we believe about the Bible. Because what we believe about the Bible is what we believe about how we live out our faith and what we believe in our faith. And so Paul says two things here I think are real important. First, he says that all Scripture is breathed out or God-inspired. In other words, God's character has been infused into all of Scripture. And I don't know the mechanics of that. Don't believe anyone who says they do. We just don't know. But what we do know is that in some way, the writers of Scripture were filled with God's Spirit, even as God invoked the writers' personalities and their life experiences and their words. And in a way, I think Peter may have been giving us a little bit of an insight to this when he talked about this process of being filled with the Spirit. He said no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And again, Peter's referencing the Hebrew scriptures in this, but I think it's important to know that later Peter goes on to say the very words of Paul, the writings of words, the teachings of Paul, they were also inspired by the Spirit, not according to the wisdom of Paul. And so we see a similar process of God breathe in both the Old and the New Testament. And regardless of the mystery of how that works, the bottom line is that God's Word is God's Word. It was not initiated by nor did it originate with human authors. And so he says the second thing you need to know, Paul, or Timothy, when you're you're talking about Scripture, is that God has inspired not some of Scripture... Not most of Scripture, but all Scripture is God-breathed. Every prophecy, every command, every work of poetry, every historical account. And I know there are a few of us, a few um, that really kind of the nerdy sort of thing that gets into the original languages. You like to know the Greek or the Hebrew of our modern translations, and I think that's awesome. There's some great insight in that. When you look at the Greek and the Hebrew, or the Greek here, of what we translate into all or every, you're going to be really disappointed. Because the Greek for our all and every means all and every. There is absolutely no controversy when it comes to interpreting what Paul is implying here. Scripture is all God-breathed, and therefore all Scripture originates from God, And therefore, all Scripture is true. And I'm sure that most of us, when we hear that, most of us can realize the consequences of a church in our day that denies this premise. It's as if the well-known 16th century reformer John Calvin was addressing such a church when he once said, we must never pick and call the Scriptures to please our own fancy, but must receive the whole the all without exception. And so if you're if you're visiting today or if you're new to our congregation, you might not know that our mission as a church is to build followers of Jesus who are sent to reach others. That's our mission. And we believe that we most faithfully live this out when we allow the values of our church that God has uniquely gifted and designed into his congregation to make that happen. And I think what you'll see on this left-hand side, you'll see that there are seven of these values, equally pursued, equally important, but yet the first one listed is the value that truly is the foundation to why and how we exhibit the other six. We are a Bible-centered people. And you say, well, what what does that mean exactly? Exactly. Well, in in sort of the short version of that, that means that we are professing that our teaching, our ministries, our missions are grounded in an all-Scripture biblical understanding. We believe that the inspired words of the Apostle John are just as ordained as those of the prophet Amos, that we believe the Bible addresses obedience in the life of a believer, and that might come in a listing of the Christ-like traits that we're to imitate or it might come in a listing of those uh, warnings of actions and attitudes that are forbidden in our life. But in either, neither of these lists are served cafeteria style. They're not a pick-and-choose option to please our own fancy or to make us more comfortable. The doctrine of being Bible-centered But I also want to add here, because I think this is really important, in expressing this doctrine of Scripture and our value of Bible-centeredness, I want to stress this is in no way a call to the dogmatic or combative use of Scripture. Above all, the truth and grace of Jesus are a higher calling, not the hurt and the hate of biblical beatdowns we want to be especially careful that we know the essentials from the non-essentials and we never want to wave the flag of our own personal bumper sticker verse without fully comprehending and knowing and living out the biblical truth behind that verse. Because we know that a false truth is often more dangerous than a silent truth. The all-inspired word. And so Paul says, this is what you need to know about the Bible. I'll remind you about what it tells you. Now let me give you some practical advice. Because there's four things, four primary uses that God has for his scripture that are very practical. And this is why they're very profitable. He says that all scripture is profitable for teaching and reproving the learning of God's word. See, Paul, earlier in this letter, if you recall, had instructed Timothy to hold fast to sound doctrine. And now he's saying, Timothy, this is where you find sound doctrine. It's in Scripture. It teaches. It instructs. If you're going to teach on the doctrine of God, his attributes, his being, his plan, who he is, go to Scripture. If you're going to teach on the doctrine of of, uh, creation, go to Scripture. You might think, well, we'll just go to Genesis. Genesis. Did you know the doctrine of creation is in Exodus and Nehemiah and Job and Chronicles, Ecclesiastes and Samuel, on and on and on, but let it be in Scripture. The doctrine of sin is in any book where the gap is emphasized between a holy God and a fallen man or in the doctrine of atonement for that sin, the salvation doctrine that we can look to Isaiah 53, or we can look in Jeremiah, or we can look in Malachi. But Timothy, it's all out there. You don't need to make anything else up. You don't need to create the will. The doctrine and instruction of Scripture is in Scripture, and that's why it's profitable. But yes, there's a, but there's a second way we learn. And so this is sort of like a two, two, uh, two-way uh, model of learning. And we learn when we are reproved. And in other words, Scripture reminds us of God's standard and the expected life behavior and witness of one who would follow him. They help us understand not just where we miss the mark, but where we misunderstand. That's the reproving of Scripture. And when I think about this model of learning, that it's both teaching and reproving, I I immediately go back to uh, my days in high school football. So I I go way back. I go way back, and I think about my, what I really loved about high school football was practice. I loved practice week because I loved learning the new offense that we were going to play against. I learned new, learning the new schemes and the new assignments and the new calls. And I found the practice field was especially profitable for teaching to learn. What I didn't love was the Saturday morning post-game film review. We had a, a saying. We said that the eye in the sky doesn't lie. And so we would go play by play, and it was painful. Even in victory, even when we thought, man, I, that was a great game. There's, there, oh, wait, there probably is that play. Reproof is probably going to be in order. And secretly you were hoping that the camera had malfunctioned or that the coach would have to walk out of the room. And, and uh, you could, I could still hear it. You know, Holcomb, why did you, why did you fill that gap? You were supposed to fill this gap. Holcomb, why'd you take that back? You were supposed to take this back. Holcomb, why did he go by you like that? <laughs> that, that was the easy one. I, Coach, you know I'm not that fast. But pointing out these areas where my actions or my misunderstanding uh, you know, didn't match the standard was important to me learning. It was important to me becoming a better player. And it was the reproving part of that learning. So as painful as it is, when we open Scripture sometimes, we need to approach it with that eye-in-the-sky view. We need to see how we best live out our faith. And so Scripture teaches and reproves as we learn. It also is useful for correction, the living out of God's Word. And now but before you think correction, oh man, another negative one. No, no. Paul's use of the word correction here is actually a positive affirmation. See, if reproof is the revelation of maybe our sin or our misunderstanding, then correction is the instruction of how we live obedient lives. You know, so for example, we may have a desire to live in, in community or to be accountable with someone else, and we're reading through Scripture and we come to Hebrews. And we read that we should not give up on meeting with one another. And the importance of that community in, in becoming who God intends us to be. And so we see that as the correction. Or I call up a brother in Christ and say, hey, I'd like us to start meeting. I'd like us to start just being accountable with one another. Because I was reading in Scripture, in Proverbs, where iron sharpens iron. And that looked like something I could apply in my life. And so correction... Here, being profitable for application. It's the uh, being motivated uh, to implement what Scripture says. And it's, it's also why we suggest that in Bible studies, there's four things that we should do. We should look at a text. First thing we should do is just say, what does it say? Not what does it mean, just what, did it, what does it literally say? The second is, if I were receiving that letter as an original intendee, the, the audience of that, that letter, what would it mean to me? The third thing is, how does it fit into the rest of Scripture around it or into the Bible? And then the fourth thing, and most importantly, is, what do I do with it? How do I apply it? How do I intend to live this out, what God is trying to now show me through Scripture? And that's, that's a, a, a biblical approach to study and application and correction. And then finally, Paul says, Scripture is profitable for training. And this is the loving of God's Word. See, the Bible is intended to guide us to a disciplined, ever-maturing, more righteous or right faith. It's the loving of Scripture that we discover when Scripture becomes to us as it was to Moses throughout Deuteronomy. He says it was his life. God's words were his life. As it was to Jesus in the wilderness where he says they're my nourishment. I don't live on bread alone, but on the words of God. And so when Scripture becomes our life and our daily bread, we are being trained in loving the all-Scripture God, and we're being moved from the realization that it's not the words on a page or a book on a shelf that we're in love with or that we're worshiping, but it's the author of those words. Scripture trains us by transforming us to a disciplined life of following Jesus and knowing Him better and loving Him more. So that's it. In those those few verses, Paul's, that's some of Paul's best of the best, I believe. And he has described for us our Bible. He has said it's an all-inspired, God-breathed, multiple-use revelation of God and his plan for salvation through Jesus Christ. And even as we hear that, you know, even as we're sitting here today, you might also be thinking, well, okay, I'm good with that. I can, I can believe that, um, and I'm good with the idea that the Bible can be used for a variety of reasons, but why can't I just accept that, maybe know John 3.16, tuck that away, and then listen to Bible teachers tell me everything else that's important to me? Why do I need to engage in Scripture? And I would say, that's a good question. That's a fair question. I'll admit that there are places in the Bible that do seem like we're learning a foreign language. And in a world where reading in general has become less desirable and schedules have become more busy, why should you take time to be in this old book? Well, we're going to answer that with Scripture. In fact, Paul finishes out his whole thought on this by concluding and expecting that question from us. He says that Scripture is necessary in our life because, so that the servant of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The reason we're to live in the Bible is because it leads us to a life that is equipped, meaning a life that is in shape or fit or ready. We go to the why because we want to equip our body. We go to the Bible because we want to equip our life. Being complete is a life described as being lived to its fullest on mission with great purpose. And don't, don't we all, I think we all desire this. Deep down, if we, are a, if we are confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior, and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, a Romans ten nine believer assured of our salvation, deep down, don't we want to grow more complete? Just a, just a little bit each day. Don't we want to be equipped? It's regardless of where we are today. You may say, I've never looked in the Bible before. Fine, perfect. That's a starting place. This is not a race, nor it's a place to compare resumes. There's a continuum. And wherever you are along that continuum of being equipped, being prepared to disciple others, capable of opening God's Word and showing and sharing the way of salvation... Don't you want to stand here a year from today and say, thank you, Lord, for helping me understand your word just a little bit better, being more equipped? See, I don't think any of us really want to be unprepared. And that will happen. We'll be unprepared for a question or we'll be unprepared for a moment, and that's okay. But worse is none of us should want to be unwilling to be better prepared. The charge to Timothy and the charge to each of us is that we are to be complete, be equipped, be prepared for every good work that the Lord has for us because of our engaging in his scripture and his word. And so how do we do that? Just sort of bringing to a conclusion by way of application this morning. I'd suggest just a few things here you might want to consider. I would say that if the Bible is boring to you, If you have uh, become uh, a place in your life where the Bible has become more irrelevant to you, then I would say that you should pray for a renewed desire and that there would be a fresh approach to God's Word, that it would be renewed in, in your engagement with it. And then commit to a regular time of Bible. That may be once a week to start, just a passage. It may be daily for five minutes. But just start engaging in the Bible regularly. And then there are some of us that find learning or loving or living out to be something we truly desire, but not all three. And we're called to find a balance. God's word is to be a balance in our learning and loving and living out. It's like a tripod. You know, if one of the legs on a tripod is shortened, it can never reach its maximum height and it's prone to toppling over. And so I would encourage us in the learning, loving, and living out of God's Word that we lengthen and we strengthen that tripod of biblical understanding. If it's learning that you need help with, I suggest pick one book. There's, there's 66. Pick one, and this time next year, be the expert in your home on that book. Who wrote it? Who were they writing it to? What was the scene? What is the theme? What is God revealing in that book for us today? Be engaged in learning Scripture. If it's loving, maybe it's spending more time just meditating on Scripture, praying a verse of Scripture in your life. We've got a booklet on um, meditation of Scripture on a resource center. Maybe it's just saying, I'm working toward really just loving God's Word because it allows me to love Him more and know Him better. And if it's living out, that may be in serving, it may be in any other application you find in Scripture that you need to sort of get yourself out of the Word in order to be a living Word in, in your community or around those that are around you. Lastly, I would say that this is a good time to be intentional in having others come around you. We've got small groups starting up in in September. We've got the Women of the Word Bible study. We've got a men's Bible study on Wednesday morning. Uh, There's a time that you can just reach out to someone else and just have a one-on-one. But whatever it is, think about being committed to being intentional with one another in an environment that allows you to learn, love, and live out God's Word. And lastly, if you are here this morning and you are not yet a follower of Jesus we would like nothing more than to share the gospel with you or answer any of your questions. And you can make a note on your, hey, I'm here card. You can contact us directly. It, it is our highest privilege to share the way to salvation through the, Jesus Christ, the faith in Jesus Christ with anyone. So please don't hesitate to do that. If you'd like a Bible, we've got some at the, at the Welcome Center as well. And we'd love to answer any of your questions about that. But in all scripture faith, one powered by the living God-breathed word made more complete each day to do his good works. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we prepare to leave here this morning, we just pray for your presence, for your strength and your comfort through this coming week, Lord. We pray, especially right now, that you would ignite in us a passion for your word, that you would ignite a passion for us just to learn more about it, to love you through it, and to live it out in the world around us. We pray that your spirit would just fill us and work through us as we are in your word. Lord, may you equip us, may you make us more complete, may we grow in our maturity in you because of time in your word. And we ask this in the name of the great author. Amen.